Howdy, meeps, and welcome to the Meeple Syrup Show. Meeple Syrup Show, it is Wednesday at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time or Daylight Time or whatever we're on. And we're back with another episode. Today we have with us the wonderful Kathleen Mercury and the equally wonderful Chris Rollins uh, with an S. And they're here to join us to talk about some design stuff. So we're digging into design. But before we get to them, let's talk about the guy all the way to that way, all the way to that way on the screen. He's Well, it's all reversed, right? So he's that way. Oh, Jesse, you're hiding. The guy with the pink hair. <laughs> Jesse's hey, back! Hey, I'm back. Yeah, that's right. I'm back. I'm in Canada. Um, and I'm here to stay for a little bit. So yeah, it's super exciting. Didn't expect to be on tonight, but uh, the road trip went good. And uh, Erica needed to recuperate and prepare for um, Proto-TO this weekend. So I'm making an early reappearance. I'm excited to be here and uh, excited to be able to chat with these two. I was eager to um, watch tonight's episode. I've got prototypes all over the table. I was going <laughs> to do my classic work and listen to a podcast, mm -hmm. but um, now I get to grill them. So that's exciting. It's all good. It's all good. So let's get started. Um, can we start with Chris? Chris, tell us who you are, what you do, and what's your speciality? Um, well, my name is Chris Rollins. I am a game uh, developer and producer at Funko Games. Um, our studio, our game studio, was uh, formerly called uh, Force Present Creative, also go by the pen name Prospero Hall. Uh, we're sort of known uh, in the hobby sphere for doing games like um, Disney Villainous, um, Jaws, Horrified. Those are all published by Robinsberger. Um, we've also done stuff like Choose Your Adventure with, uh, with Asmodee and Z-Man. Um, but now we're kind of branching off on our own. Uh, our studio was acquired by Funko earlier this year, so now we're the Funko Games team, and we're going to be coming out with a Funkoverse strategy game in about a week or so. Uh, so I'm, I'm a game designer. I've done a little bit of, of producing on projects at our studio. A producer is sort of like a creative project manager. Um, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And Kathleen, moving over to you. What's up? How are you? I'm fine. Cool. Uh, my name is Kathleen Mercury. I am a middle school teacher, but I have spent the last 12, 13 years teaching game design to kids. And I think somewhere around 700 something games that I've helped kids design from scratch into uh, prototype form. Uh, I design games. I've got one that's going on Kickstarter next year uh, with Colossal called Dragnarok. And I've got a couple other prototypes, you know, going in the hopper, various stages of development and uh, at different stages, I guess. Um, and I provide all my teaching resources for free at KathleenMercury.com. So if someone wants to teach game design to kids, please take my resources, use them, do them better than me, and then tell me all about it on games in schools and libraries or on board game broadcast. Those are two great podcasts that Kathleen is part of. And some of them are video casts as well, right? So yes. They're really good. If you are a teacher, you want to be linked into those. They're great. Yes. Um, tonight, we're talking specifically, though, about getting over those design humps. So we're digging into design, and we're talking about how we keep afloat, how we just keep swimming, you know, a little dory action. And uh, Jesse, you had talked at the start of the show, uh, before we actually started, mm -hmm. about different areas of design processes and the barriers and the choke points. That was one thing that you really wanted to talk about. So can you start us off from your perspective? What are the choke points that you find right at the beginning? 
Well, I mean, get it, having an idea in the first place, right? And so this is something we've talked about before on the show, but it's, uh, I find the, you know, you, you go through ebbs and flows in your creative process. And when you design lots of games all the time, every once in a while, you find yourself in these moments where you know you need to start working on something. And you may even have a project scoped on the table, like, oh, I need to work on this IP, say, if you're with a with a creative group like Funko, or if you've been asked by a publisher, or if you see there's a call like, oh, this publisher that I'd really love to work with is interested in this certain type of Euro game or a game that looks like this. And so you sit down and you get a pen and you get a piece of paper and you say, hey, I've designed 50 games so far. I can design another game. And you've got crickets in your head. Um, and so I think I think that's the first and probably one of the most common blocks that that designers run into. Um, and so I'm curious, what do you what do you um, do, Kathleen, uh, and then Chris, uh, when you're really really just want to get started on something and uh, are in desperate need of ideas? Well, for me, there's nothing better than just that sort of like euphoric sort of rush of like having an idea that you're excited about, you know, and especially when you know it's going to be good <laughs> and that doesn't always <laughs> work out that way. But um, one thing for me, like it's always sort of like low burner, back burner on the back of my head in terms of what's something that I could gamify. Because I tend to start thinking about things that are real world and then how I can gamify them. I tend to go um, from that direction. But when it comes to like, I'm wanting an idea, like for me, honestly, it has to kind of make me laugh or there has to be something about it that really appeals to me personally. Um, but it also just depends too, because I also really like design constraints. If you said, Kathleen, go make me a game, I don't know, but if you say, Kathleen, I need you to make me a worker placement game about celery, I'm like, cool, I'm on it. You know what I mean? I like to have boundaries so I can push them as much as possible. So for me, when it comes to coming up with ideas that like get me excited and going, I have to be able to see boundaries quickly for myself or set boundaries for myself, which mm -hmm. is really, really hard. But once I have an idea of kind of like the scale and scope and like the space I'm, the game is and where I'm going to be working, then I can really start to move forward and make process. So for me, so much of it when I don't have an idea is coming up with that thing that really hooks me. And then two, figuring out like, I know there's I, this idea that I want and I have no idea how to do it. And the sooner I can narrow that down, the sooner I can really get to work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, I think my personal process kind of mirrors Kathleen uh, in a lot of ways. You know, for me, as someone who works at, at a studio and, you know, previously when we were Prospero Hall, you know, we were all about creating projects for clients. And we were a studio that was working on anywhere between 30 and 40 games a year, uh, active like greenlit projects. But beyond that, I mean, we would go to Asmodee and we would, you know, pitch them 20 game ideas, you know, and, and from those ideas, they would kind of call those down. Um, and so for us, it, it it's kind of... Um, it's a lot of different things. Uh, you know, it's one thing, sometimes people will come to us with a, with a project and they'll say, you know, make a, a game based on this IP and you automatically sort of have these constraints that Kathleen's talking about. And I'm the same type of designer where I like to just know what my parameters are and then try to solve the problem of fitting something into those parameters. I think it really helps kind of focus me. Um, but we've also been, you know, asked to just come up with ideas out of the blue. And at our studio, we have a, a couple different ways of, of going about doing that. And, and one thing that we always keep track of is something, uh, we have a base camp set up and we have something called Blue Sky. 
and blue sky is somewhere where um and if you have any idea whatever it, it could be you go to blue sky and you, you write it down and you catalog it there and then other people can kind of see what's in blue sky and, and we can kind of pull projects or ideas from mm -hmm. there um but the other thing that's really i think unique and part of like the special sauce of what made our studio so successful on the mass market um outside of like some of our more you know, better known hobby games, is that we would actively seek out ideas anywhere. And uh, today, while I was at work, I, I put a message out to some of my other coworkers, uh, asking them the same kind of question of how they kind of worked through um, some roadblocks. And so I'm going to kind of mention some of the ideas that, that they've had. And uh, Stephanie Straw talked about something that we do a lot at a Force Prezan. And that's just go to a, like a boutique store and start looking for just trends or looking for ideas that pop up. Hmm. And, and for example, um, we did a game with Asmodee called Skulk, and it's sort of like this geometric, you know, rose gold skull, uh, like marble holder that spits out marbles, and we built a game around that. But that whole idea was like, hey, rose gold is really popular. What hmm. could we do with rose gold? You oh, know, interesting. And, we, and a lot of the times our projects kind of stem from these really strange things. It's like, hey, um, what if a packet, what if a game package had a liquid pouch on it? what kind of game would go in a box with a liquid pouch and those types of kind of weird, crazy ideas. Um, and that game ended up becoming Catlantis uh, that we did with Robinsberger. It didn't have a liquid pouch on the box, but that's where that game idea came from, right? Is someone had the idea of these cats floating in the liquid and like mermaid cats. I don't know. It was really weird. But um, I think that's one of the things that always sort of, I, I think about because a lot of times people talk about inspiration and they talk about like mechanisms versus themes and, and, and if you're a theme first or uh, you know mechanism first designer, and to me it's more about just finding that thing that inspires you, and that goes back to what Kathleen says: is it's like, you know, I could hear a joke and be like, oh, that's a funny joke or that's a funny pun. What does that? What is that game? And right. and I think that's kind of the key. Yeah, Dragnarok was uh, originally called Dirty Birdie, and it was about <laughs> pigeons dropping poop cubes all over a city, uh, wiping out people, and uh, that was inspired by a Girl Scout song. Uh, oh, I wish hmm. I was a little dirty birdie. And it goes basically, yeah. And then, nice. uh, yeah. And then my, the current game that I'm really excited about working on right now uh, is one called Valkyrie. And that's one that I was asked to make a game last year based on uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that game didn't go, but I came up with a very specific style of tiles. And then I just had these tiles when the project, you know, didn't work. And then it's like, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And I feel like that was, was such a big step forward for me as a designer because it was, here's these things. How do I make a game out of this? As opposed to, here's the theme. How do I gamify that? And mm -hmm. so I think one of the most important things is, you know, you have to stretch yourself and you have to challenge yourself because I always thought, you know, like, what's tell me a world and I'll figure out a way to gamify that. But to go from that like mechanics first, you know, like, you know, whatever, um, that perspective was so important towards not just making that game work, but also like building your confidence to just try other things because we all have limited time, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I teach, so there are days when I just come home and like collapse. So to like, okay, it's work time. Like I spent my days talking about games. I can't always do that. So mm -hmm. um, I'm just kind of toast, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm not 15 games at a time person. When you said 30 to 40 games, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like two or three, you know what I mean? But that's what yeah. works for me. You know, I'm not hired to do this professionally. So I think in a lot of ways, you just have to, you know, just try more than what you think you can do, but also 
listen to yourself and know who you are and what you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think, you know, our studio to start, I don't, I can't imagine working on 30 to 40 games at a time. Um, but you know, it, it, that's one of the benefits of working with a, uh, with a studio is that we all can kind of uh, lean into to one another and kind of come up with these ideas. Um, another sort of tr like thing that came up a lot in the responses we were getting, like Deirdre, our head of production uh, said it in our little Slack channel. Um, but what she likes to do is if she's really stuck on a, on a problem of, of, uh, for example, trying to say like, well, we want to come up with like a children's game and we know that we want to pitch, you know, 10 children's games this year or whatever. Um, and we don't, we're really stuck on ideas. She likes to take walks and kind of just get out of the normal environment. And, um, but she's, she's really uh, passionate about taking walks with purpose. And so she'll kind of set, she'll say like, I'm going to take a walk and I want to, you know, think about children's games and think about what inspires me about children's games. And it, and it's, you know, our studio happens to be kind of in a, in an area of Seattle where there's like, you know, playgrounds and stuff, you know, so you can walk around, you can kind of like put yourself in the mind of a child if you want. Or, you know, we also, you know, there's all sorts of stimulus ar around. Um, but I think that's kind of, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it is that sometimes, you know, as a designer, and, and it's different if you're a freelancer, or if you're, you know, contracted for, for a job, but you have to kind of, spur that creativity you can't always wait to be inspired you have to actively try to pursue those types of things and, and find what works for you um it's such a personal process but right. um but yeah it's and that's why i'm, I'm glad to be here to talk to you guys because i want to know you know what you do that works and maybe that mm -hmm. can apply that to some of what, what i do as well sure uh zach Connolly is saying he plays more games and then tries oops tries to make them different types of games so um he was also very uh vocal about the finding a component uh that is is inspires you so he has one based around gel pens so a couple really interesting things there matt paquette asked us do you ever see the game visuals before knowing how it plays have you ever done that have yeah. you ever seen it jess what about you have you seen and in your mind's eye, I know this is what yeah. it's going to look like. Yeah. Um, I actually think that, so my way of dealing with creative blocks is to try and start making things, just doing it. Um, and usually that involves trying to make myself see it. I'm usually creatively blocked because I can't do what Matt's describing, which is imagine what the game is going to look like. Um, and so the, the best inspiration for me is... When not not to say that these have ever uh, been successful projects, but usually the <laughs> ones I get running with the fastest is when I do stuff like what Chris was describing, going to stores. But I go to craft stores and I like walking through their laser cut section, and I'll buy things, um, mm -hmm. and I'll go home with ten dollars of randomly shaped laser cut wood pieces. And if it is the if I just pick it up and feel the game in my hand, I'll have a prototype in like thirty minutes um, because I can see in my head what the game is going to look like. And now I can start building things to make that reality. Um, and if I can't see what it should look like, I pull up GIMP and I build a basic card frame and I start putting things in place so I get a visual, um, so I can start getting some visual hooks to work with. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, what about you? Are you a visual, um, uh, do you visualize it first? I guess that's a good Definitively question. so. I have to be able to see it because I only think in pictures. 
Uh, if you give me math equations, like, I mean, I can do basic math, obviously, but if you give me like, like complicated algebra back then, I was just so frustrated because I would have to convert it in my head to basically a 3d representation of what we were trying to do, convert that back to numbers so that I could then, you know, do the work that was assigned and it was exhausting. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm so bad at math. I didn't realize that most people don't have to do that. So for me, um, like my game, like a lot of my games are very strongly visual and, for me, they ha like I ha I have to be able to see it, or I, I don't move forward with it. You know, um, if I have an idea and I have a picture in my head, that means I can start moving forward. Um, if I don't have a picture, then it doesn't go anywhere. Mm, interesting, Chris. What about you? Picture in head, good thing, bad thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that um, it, good thing or bad thing is an interesting question because I, I think you could get too uh, focused on something if you're if you're stuck on what you think it should be and it's not quite fitting that that could also stymie you in a way. Um, but again, like it's a really personal thing for me. Um, you know, I lean more towards kind of what, uh, Zach mentioned actually in the chat where he was saying that he gets inspired by playing other games. For me, I like to identify things or, you know, um, decisions that I think are really interesting or, or mm -hmm. components of other games that are really interesting. And then like, really like think about those kind of stretched out and seeing how they might apply to other things when it comes to my actual actually building or starting to prototype something. I'm a very rapid prototyper um, because I'm also uh, kind of in Jesse's camp a little bit where uh, I need to actually touch pieces and move them around to like see how they function. Um, we have designers at our studio um, that are much more big picture. Like uh, Aaron Dono is, is a good friend of mine, one of our designers. He was, um, you know, really integral on our villainous game, for example. You know, he kind of takes a step back and a lot of times he does it in the shower, but he'll take a step back and he'll be like, what is this whole game like? And he like can think of it in his head and and have he has the whole sort of framework in his head. And obviously that changes, but the blueprint is there where I'm much more of like, give me one little thing to kind of chew on for a bit. And then I'll kind of slowly build upon that or explore that. Um, but that's another you know interesting thing that's with with our studio that's that's kind of unique is that uh, Prospero Hall slash Funko Games, I we have thirty to forty employees and we have graphic designers and illustrators on staff that are part of our company, and so if I have an idea or for, for a game, we can have a graphic designer and illustrator like mock up what that box cover looks like, like. And then I see the box over. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Now what does the rest of this game do? You know, like mm -hmm. so those visuals do absolutely spur that design. Um, but it's not something where I like I can see the whole game. It's just little visuals that kind of cue me in. Yeah, interesting. R Ryan Lockhead of Red uh, Red Raven Games. First thing he does when he designs the game is he does the box art. He, he he's you know incredibly talented artist. And then once he has that, then he starts to work on the game because he said that kind of gives him that set and that feel. Hmm. And I, I mean, it's like, sort of like a, almost like the cover of a book. Yeah. And mm -hmm. honestly, like for me, this isn't necessarily always a good thing. You know, as far as you know, like there's like this game idea that I have right now. I have a, like I have a strong visual in my head, like ideas about certain mechanics and stuff. But in some ways, because it's it's really challenging for me to sort of <laughs> be logical about it, you know. Uh, sometimes it's a it's a long, slow road towards 
you know, making a prototype. And I'm jealous that Chris has such a team because um, my boyfriend's a published designer, but we don't design well together. We're very, very mm. different. And that's okay. That's good. It just means we don't force it. But, you know, the person who I've worked with most recently where I felt like really like good sense working together, you know, lives three hours away, you know? And so that's really hard because especially for someone like me who likes to have those parameters, you know, when I'm on my own, just kind of trying to muddle it out. Like, I feel like mm. I'm in a fog a lot of the times. Sure. So I think Kathleen's heard the story and, and Jesse might as well. But um, my story about visualization is that it actually hinders me in a lot of ways uh, because I build the perfect game in my head mm. and mm. then I get locked into that. Um, and this is what, what has plagued me since I was a little kid. Um, and I had a teacher set me aside and say, hey, this is why you never finish your projects because I would never hand things in because they would be perfect in my head and I was not skilled enough to actually make them into what I saw in my head because they were perfect. Mm -hmm. um, and so now I've grown up and I've gotten past that uh, and I will like put stuff on paper and rip it up and cut it apart and things like that. But the younger me was not at all like that. Um, and so now I think I'm at a happy medium where I can actually visualize games in my head. Like Erica and I are working on one together that we've basically talked about for like maybe an hour, visualized it, and it's pretty much done. Like it's, the game works really well. It just needs to be tweaked and balanced now. Um, and so the, the visualization for me helps. And I'm a, I, like, like you, Kathleen, I'm a very visual person. Uh, but then it's the putting it on the paper and trying it out and testing it and playing it and proving that something is good or not so great. Um, that's the next step for, for me. And I guess it goes along with another bottleneck area that Jesse identified, which is playtesting. How do you guys work on playtesting? So this is a good one for the difference between, you know, again, a studio versus freelancers. We'll start with Chris, because you've kind of got this really good setup at, at mm -hmm. uh, Funko. Mm -hmm. So um, when you're, when you're, if when you're talking about bottlenecks of um, creativity during playtesting, what exactly are you, are you asking with that question? Like what sort of bottlenecks are you picturing? Um, so I can kind of, kind of more of a... Oh, I mean, it could be anything. It could be anything that you think is a bottleneck. And they may be different for you than they are for Kathleen because of, you know, just difference in game style, different in, difference in availability of resources. So is there a bottleneck for, in playtesting for you, Chris? And if so, what is it? So I think that to me, um, if I'm understanding the question correctly or the or the, the area of the design we're talking about, I, I think the biggest bottleneck that occurs during playtesting is when you're trying to determine, you know, what sort of feedback to uh, apply to your game and what sort of like, I guess, uh, stimulus to, to that you know, feedback you're getting from people, how to apply that to your to your project, what to what feedback to listen to, what feedback to ignore, those types of things. And uh, for me, I think that a lot of it is um, trying to always be mindful that uh, that our games are going to be are created for other people. That one of the things I I've said a lot about, and I think Aaron has talked about, it, I think Sen has actually even. Uh, talked about it a little bit is that really as a game designer my most important element that i can bring to the table is like empathy and understanding mm -hmm. the experiences that the players who are experiencing my game have um and so when i'm looking at the play test um more so than what they're telling me for feedback is i'm, I'm looking for cues in uh in, into how they're expressing the, their feedback or to how they're experiencing the game 
Um, but ultimately, again, this is where I sort of lean on the team that we have at uh, Funko Games because we have a lot of different perspectives that are there. And I think that, you know, if I got playtest feedback, if I was a freelance designer and I got playtest feedback uh, from someone and, you know, I could kind of like codify it, I think it is important to maybe perhaps run that sort of feedback through other designers or other people that you know, other gamers you know, to kind of see how, what, what they feel about those types of things. Um, because a lot of times, and it was kind of mentioned in the, in the comments, is we can kind of be precious with our ideas and it's good to kind of be jostled out of that occasionally. And you need to have a people who you trust to give you, you know, their honest feedback when it comes to those those types of things. Yeah, um, I think it was Matt Paquette who's asked, you know, how strongly do you cling to your original idea? How much do you resist modifying your initial design? Right. So. Yeah, and so it's tough. Like it's it's a it's a two pronged, you know, it's it's a two pronged problem because in one hand, like you have a vision for the game and you kind of know what you're, the experience you're trying to create, but you also have to react to the experience that people are having. And sometimes it's like, it's like, well, the experience they're having might even be better than what I was trying to create in the first place. You know, like you can get positive play test feedback as well. That is unexpected. So it, it's definitely a difficult thing. And I think that um, it requires you to, to play a lot of games to, and really get out of your head and try to experience what other people are experiencing. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that Chris is like, I'm like bobbing my head, you know, like I'm <laughs> on an ocean, you know, I mean, why I teach game design for my gifted kids is so that they can learn to deal with imperfect, unfinished, you know, you know, everything that Sen was talking about, how Sen was as a kid, I have those kids now, and I'm trying to help them get over this hump while they're younger, as opposed to like letting them think that A plus is all there is to success. Um, but the big thing that I do is I use Stanford, the, the Stanford Design School method of prototype design, and it starts with empathy, understanding the needs of your user. And I consider it such a success when my students go from being so afraid to show their games to other people to being mad when other kids don't have their feedback forms. They're like, where's my feedback form? You play tested my game yesterday. Like, I want my feedback. And they, one of the things, the most common things they say at the end is, what did you learn from this? You'll take the other things is, if I'm having trouble with something, then I can ask other people for help and they can help me make my idea better. I mean, for, you know, 13 year old gifted kids, that's really huge, you know? And I mm -hmm. think that's also really huge for a lot of us, you know? I think you have to have, a certain amount of flexibility. You can have a passion project. You can be just so in love with it. But at the end of the day, too, when it comes to games, you have to make a product that sells. So what Chris is saying about, you know, understanding the needs of your user, the, one of the people that I've learned the most from is John Brieger, who's a professional developer. Um, go to his website. He's got an article about observational research because he actually started designing Apple stores when he was 22 years old, all about creating that experience. And all the things that he learned from that experience, he then applies. And in a lot of ways, it almost doesn't matter what you wanted in the game, what you liked, how are people responding to it? And if there's one aspect that people are really, really enjoying and not necessarily the rest of it, maybe you should consider leaning hard into that. And like I said earlier, you know, my game Dirty Birdie was signed as Dirty Birdie and it's now Dragons and it looks nothing like the game. It's definitely several significant iterations down the road from what I sold, you know, but on the other hand is if I want to see this hit the market as a product, 
then I have to be willing to make changes. I have to figure out ways to be excited about these changes. I have to be willing to make these changes something I'm just equally excited about as it was the original game because I had to cut some things that I did not want to take out. But mm -hmm. the game is better as a result. You just, like Chris said, is if it's precious then you don't want to change it. So with my, you know, fast and cheap prototyping, you know, be willing to see it as a flexible moving thing, um, not as this is my perfect thing and now all hail. And if somebody doesn't like it, that means they're wrong. I don't think they're the ones that are wrong in that case. Yeah, it, it, it's something that came up a little bit with, um, you know, in before, before we kind of went on the air and we all sort of like uh, mentioned it. Um, and that's the idea that, uh, or I guess the concept that you can have bad ideas and you, you can explore bad ideas. And it, and to me, you know, come while I was getting ready to come to on the show, that was the biggest kind of thing that I was thinking about of how I overcome, uh, these creative blocks is that I work at a studio that is so fast paced and we, and we're, we don't have time to like, to, only filter out into good ideas. We have to throw every idea at the table and then see what sticks because we don't have the luxury of like waiting until we get the perfect idea. And I think in playtesting, you have to realize that like, uh, you know, nothing that you can, nothing that you try to playtest is, can be, is irreversible. So nothing that you're doing is immutable. So even if like you have like a gut feeling that some me mechanism is not quite working, like you have to be like, okay, well, you know, if, you know, this, this mother and her kids, if their experience is accurate, you know, and maybe I disagree with it. Maybe I think that that was an anomaly, but if, it, but I can make a prototype that addresses some of their issues, even if it goes against my wishes, just to try it out and see how the next round of playtesting works. Right. And if it turns out that I was right all along and that, you know, the original way I had it work, I think works better. I can always revert back, mm -hmm. but you have to, uh, you have to give yourself permission to make bad stuff, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Well, and going back to one thing from a story that John told me once was that in uh, his uh, design classes in college, this professor decided to have one class focus on making like one or two things really, really good. And the other class focus on making a lot of different things. And by the time the semester ended, the class that made so much more in terms of volume, their products were so much better because you learn so much every time. And so you have to be willing. Um, and it's hard because like I said, I'm a couple games at a time kind of person. I don't have 17 different projects or five different projects, you know, but having that idea yeah. of like what you're saying in terms of volume generating so many ideas because it's like you know your first idea is is best on a multiple choice test but not necessarily in life you know what i mean sometimes you really just got to push yourself and then you just uncover all these little things at the edges that wait a minute this might actually be something mm -hmm. you know life's not a multiple choice test <laughs> i spend my I life trying to convince <laughs> children that it is not i was mistrained mm -hmm. um so I think I think that there is um, something importantly different, though, between uh, your ability, Chris, as a member of this fast-paced studio, to iteratively test every bad idea or many bad ideas to find out whether or not they're good or what like seeds and promise are in each of them, so that you can zero in on a more effective product more rapidly. Um, the big playtesting choke point that at least I have as a freelancer is number of playtests. Um, my upper game on the table between, or at least more far between than I would like. Um, 
And so I have to both be conscious of the, the importance of allowing myself to make mistakes and take the game down the wrong pathway, but also do so with sensitivity to the fact that I might only get this thing to the table once every week or two. And I have six other games with different degrees of priority that I also have to be competing with this one for table time at the, you know, every other week designer events that I'm able to get out to. Um, and so I don't really have solutions for how uh, one deals with those decisions, except that they're hard decisions and you have to make them. Um, but uh, I did like the point, and this is something I learned from John too. I just spent, I was lucky enough to spend two years in Mountain View and John Brieger is part of my regular playtesting, like playtesting group and to hang out with him every week, um, is that you can actually get a lot more out of even single playtests by simply stepping back and paying attention to more things than just what the players are doing, but also what they're saying. Doing a bit of uh, educating yourself a little bit about how to run focus groups and how to do semi-structured interviews, long way to helping you get more material to work with, more perspectives and ideas out of those fewer, more precious play tests that mm -hmm. you might have access to if you're a freelancer or just a hobby designer. Yeah, I would totally agree. Um, we have some other questions. So um, I'll ask Adam Young's question next. He asks, what are good signals that an element is superfluous? That's a great word. Or that something is missing. What do you think? Um, Chris, we'll go to you on this one. Um, I think that some, if an element being superfluous, I think that if it's often uh, a rule that's forgotten or um, ignored, I think is a good, a good indication that something is superfluous. Um, if something is missing, I think that like really what you're looking for again is, is trying to be mindful of your of your what you want the experience to be and uh seeing you know if if things match that or not um you know i think that that's kind of one of the the core elements to uh the way that you know i look at for example designing like licensed products is for me if i'm looking at designing something that, that's for a license the first thing i do um is try to identify the core essence of that license. Well, I guess the first thing I do is try to figure out if I'm a fan of this this property, am I looking for an accurate, a super accurate simulation of this property, or am I looking for something more tonally, you know, as part of that property? Like, uh, for example, you know, when when we worked on when we worked on Jurassic Park, you know, my big thing was like, I don't think, I think that the idea of being on a park full of dinosaurs and trying to survive is actually more important than the narrative beats of hitting every narrative beat in the film, you know, point by point. I think, mm -hmm. I think what people want is they want to run from dinosaurs and then dinosaurs want to eat people. Like that's what you want. And so that's kind of what, what we created, but you know, and that's why in that game, we were kind of watching it and you know, the dinosaurs, it, it wasn't feeling threatening from the beginning of the game. And so I'm like, well, we need to make this board smaller because from turn one, I want dinosaurs to be biting people. Like I want to start the the dinosaurs are broken out. Like we're we're starting at in the middle of the movie. Like let's let's get people into the, the stuff they want. And so that was something that was missing from that experience was that sort of tension, that that immediate kind of um, fear that the players, the human players, were, were okay. Feeling. So that was what was missing. And so you you fix that by putting the game in medias res, right? So right in the middle of the action, bam. Right. Yeah, we're exactly. starting off getting our butts bit off by velociraptors. Yeah, 
Uh, that's what people want. want. That's what people go to Jurassic Park. I know that's get what I butts. want. I want to get my butt bitten. bit off. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Small I, butt. I enjoyed the hell out of Jaws when I got to play it um, over the summer because I thought it did such a good job, actually, of like sort of recreating the moments, the cinematic moments that you know, like I would want to experience in a Jaws game. Like I got to be the shark, which was good because that's just good that I got to have that power position. Um, but uh, I mean, I really liked like the hide and seek aspect. And then I love destroying the boat. You know, it was really, uh, and I liked how there was those the two phases too. So yeah, I thought it was a great All the touchstones, right? Yeah, it, it, I thought it did a great job. And what about yeah. you, Kathleen? How do you know that an element is, you know, more than what's necessary in a game? Or how do you know that something's not in a game that should be in a game? Well, I mean, I think generally speaking is... You know, if you're putting in things to solve problems that you don't know how to fix as part of like the overall gameplay, you know, in my mind, it's something that probably will need to come out later once the game itself becomes more clearly and tightly defined. Uh, I played a game this past weekend on Sunday at Stonemaier Design Day here in St. Louis, and there was this game where they had a couple different types of economy, three different types of economies going on, and they were sort of related, but sort of not, and thematically. And for me, I was just like, strip this out, strip this out. This is where your game is. I don't know how you're going to fix this part to make it connect to that. But basically, take two of these three economies out, because all they're doing is getting in the way of me experiencing what this game is supposed to be. And I think that's, and, and in the beginning stages of a game, when you're just trying to get your ideas out there, it totally makes sense that you're just gonna like throw it all out there, you know, see what sticks. Um, but you have to be good at, you know, that's it's just, it's one of the hardest things. I asked last year at Tabletop uh, Network, Rob Davio was presenting and I said, how do you know when an idea is bad? And, you know, and it's time to like have it, like to pull it or whatever. And he's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's hard at every level, you know, sometimes to come up with those things. Um, yeah. And I guess if something's missing, you know, it's just, you know, yeah, I agree with Chris. What's the experience you want players to have mm -hmm. um, and don't solve it with an event deck. I hate uh. <laughs> event decks. If the game if is another, another deck of cards. Uh, if a game is a forest fire and then you use an event deck to throw a nuclear bomb on top of it, what burned what? Solve one I mean, problem, don't throw in a second one. Yeah. I, I think that in a lot of ways, it, it's uh, it's almost easier to identify the things that are kind of superfluous sometimes, I feel like, because because they stick out. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, it's, you know, it's like, it, it, it's like a, you get a splinter, you know, it's like, I'm running my hand across this thing and this doesn't feel exactly right. Like it's, it's almost mm -hmm. more visceral, uh, to find something that's missing. I think, you know, uh, and I forget the gentleman's name, but Kathleen and Jesse both mentioned him, the idea of really taking a full comprehensive observation of the play test and really trying to like collect as much data as possible with all of your senses you know yeah. hear what they're listen to what they're saying watch watch their body language watch those things and like you know focus on on those kind of moments um to kind of that you want to heighten or take away and i think one of the questions that i like to ask myself and i've actually uh, the first time i asked this during a play test it was i was there was a designer that was play testing something and I was, I had a great, it's a, he's a good friend of mine and I was having a great time. I thought the game was really fun, but it just it wasn't quite clicking. It was a little bit too much. And so I said, what part of this game is fun for you? And he took it as like, I, I didn't, wasn't enjoying the experience. And he's like, wow, that's kind of rude. But what I was really getting at it was just like, 
there's there's a lot of good stuff here but like what is the thing that you like about this like <laughs> and why do you like that and then let's put stuff around that supports that element and get rid of stuff that doesn't necessarily support that exact thing that you want and a lot of times if you're honest with yourself when you're designing something you're saying what do i what's the part that i want to be fun you'll realize that you have this cool element and because of just the way that you know, we design and the way that we maybe kind of overdevelop things, we've added all these other parts to it that no longer serve that core function of what was fun in the first place. And so sometimes it's it's important to like say like, you know, and I guess that's what's what it's missing, right? Like if you really love this auction mechanism, what you might be missing is the thing that makes that necessary for players or the thing that makes players, you know, want to engage more with that system that you've created that you've, you know, you really love. Right. Interestingly enough, this question is for you, Chris, and we can all answer it, but he asked it to you specifically. What makes something over-designed? Oh, that's Zach. Um, yeah, so I, I posed a question earlier, and so I was just thinking about this this concept of, um, of we, we talk a lot about games that were underdeveloped. You hear that yeah. a lot, like, with, with, it's like, oh, yeah, they just need a little bit more development. And I was like, and I played a game recently, and I was like, you know what? Like, I think this was, like, overdeveloped. I think they I think they stripped so much away from this this game to simplify it down to like you know basically like the frame and I was like it's missing that magic that I wish was there and so I was just kind of positive as a question of something that was like I was like can you ever have a game that's over designed and underdeveloped or you know under designed or overdeveloped like those types of things mm -hmm. and to me over designed we have a thing at our studio a lot of times uh, Jay Wheatley who's sort of like our studio head talks about the invisible hand of the designer. And uh, he comes from like a like an experience creation background. He's he's like he hates rules that ex that exist because the math needs them to exist. And like it's like you know it's like oh you know in this game if you know the first player starts with three points, the second player starts with one point, and the third player starts with a negative you know two point <laughs> debt or something like that. It's like we know why that exists. We know it's to balance the game, but it feels like. It feels like the designers there and be like, oh hey, like I know that this game is unbalanced. Here's how I fixed it, you know. And those types of things to me feel like overdesigned. It's when you have to really create like a lot of rules to support this one, mm. like one thing in your game yeah. that uh, you really want to be in there or you really think needs to be in there. Yeah, I get that. I can see that. I said, what did I say? I said, underdesigned equals same path to victory overdeveloped equal something that no longer fits the designer's intent or vision. That's what I, that was my answer to that question. Kathleen, what do you think overdesigned or underdeveloped or any of those over under things that Chris is talking about? What do you think? That yeah, means? no, I, the only, there was one time I played a prototype on tabletop um, with a designer. He wanted me to take a look at something and it was a simple, silly little premise about like cats in the house this cute little theme. Um, but there were like, five or six kind of wheels in the game you know five or six little play, like kind of like design like kind of core mechanisms making the game go and you know for him and he said look this was like my first game it was like my workshop try stuff out game and i said yeah like if you wanted i think to make this work this would need to like you need to like simplify combine all that other stuff and he's like yeah i'm just gonna put it on the shelf and so for me that over design was you know when you're putting just too many things in the game and they might all need to be there to make the game work. But if it's just too much, it's just too much, you know, I don't know mm -hmm. if that's a great answer, but over design for me is it's 
everything is there. Right. Mm -hmm. And Jesse, what about you? You had you had an answer to the question too. Yeah, well, I, I briefly reflected on someone else's answer to the question because it struck me as a bit um, sideways. But yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think that Fel's also Brazilian, so it might be a language yeah. thing. I don't know. Yeah, well, um, yeah, that's possible. I think I think there's multiple ways that you can over-design. Um, Fel's example was over-designing when you, you sit down and play those games that have a million sub like a million extra components and things going on on in them right um a game that hasn't had any kind of develop looks like it hasn't had any kind of development or tuning done to it and everything including the kitchen sink is still there um and the i mean for me personally when i think of overdesigned, um i think of i think of like really 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 polished euro style designs um where you can't help but feel like you're playing a game um, right. Uh, and, and so to me that, and, and that, that, that tracks a lot of my personal tastes in games too. But if I was to ever describe something as over-designed, it would probably be a really dry mathematical, um, probably complex system that is unavoidably a game that I'm currently playing. Mm. Yeah. And, and perhaps maybe it's something where the rules get in the way of the experience. Does that yeah. sound mm. like a, yeah, like a good possibly. Heuristic? Yeah, yeah, and then right. the opposite—the opposite well, where of it the is rules when... are the experience. <laughs> you experience this the rules. This is a game like... about the rules. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm writing um, that down. Yeah. By the way, that's good. A game about rules. Oh. Brad, uh, Brad has a question. I'm not going to show it on the screen because it's super long, uh, but I will ask the final question that he asked, kind of the roundup. Um, what are some tips that y'all have for dealing with time pressure? So both of you have different types of time pressures. Kathleen, you have a full-time job and you do this, uh, you know, as a hobby on the side. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with the time pressures that you incur on a daily basis? Um, well, uh, as best I can. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Milk and cookies um, and bourbon. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> I work out, I work out every single morning. That certainly helps with stress. Um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's easier when things are going well. And when there's a game that's not going well, then it's just like this, you know, black cloud that follows right. you everywhere. You know, um, when it comes to time pressure is, I think you have to really, it's, it's such a non-answer, but like, I think you really have to figure out what works for you. I know one time Eric and I were talking about this and she's like half an hour every day. She does something with games that she's working on. Um, I don't necessarily... Uh, manage to do that. I mean, there's some advantages I have. Like if I want to play test a game, I can get 15 play tests of it done in a week. Granted, it's all with 13 year olds, but it's amazing the kind of out of the box thinking that they uh, that they're capable of. And I've gotten many a good idea from them. Um, but it just, you know, I think the the number one thing more than anything else is if you want it to happen, you have to make it a priority for yourself. It's really easy, like Sen said earlier, to like have a game that's perfect in your head because if you start messing around with it and you discover it's not perfect, then what do you have? And that can be really scary when you're working with something creatively. And you just have to be willing to accept mess and accept that it may not work out the way you want. And you also have to ask yourself, what are you trying to get out of this experience? 
you know, are you wanting some outlet from your job? Are you wanting to be able to quit your job and do this full time? Are you wanting to challenge yourself? You know, are you wanting to make $16 million? You know, you have to ask yourself what your real goals are and tailor your experience to those goals. Cool. Chris, what about you? What do you find is a deadline pressure for you working with a studio where you do have roughly, you know, you have more ideas at that studio than you have product and you have mm -hmm. 30 product shipping a year roughly. So you must have like hundreds of ideas just floating around that whole facility. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, <clears throat> again, I think it, it's a little bit different for for us. Um, and, you know, for, for us, it, it's, it's, I'll say the experience of working at, at our studio as a, as a game designer is a little bit different than um, working as a freelance designer because, you know, we're talking about deadlines, but what people uh, who might not be familiar with the way that our studio works is because we have all these designers, we have all these illustrate these graphic designers and illustrators that are at our studio and we work very quickly. And the way that we work quickly is by working on in conjunction, everything, everyone's working on everything at the same time. So that means that, uh, and we're working with licenses and everything, we're trying to hit deadlines with licenses. So I have checkpoints along the way where it's like, hey, the producer's like, Chris, we need this map locked down by this date because I need to get it to an illustrator and it's going to take them a month to do the illustration. And if we're going to hit our production deadline, that means like, so I'm not even like, I'm having to finalize components and elements of the game as we go along. But I think the interesting thing with deadlines that um, is sometimes overlooked by people who uh, have never tried working under deadlines. And I was actually talking to Stephanie Straw on the way to work this morning about this, is that deadlines can also be very useful because a lot of times if I'm, if I'm, if I was not, you know, doing this for a living, uh, when I was doing last garden with my friend, Matt, and we were, we, you know, self published it, we worked on that game for years. You know, and I'm not sure that that extra, you know, nine months that we worked on it really made it like right. a better game, but we just were constantly working on it, constantly working on it. And sometimes the deadline can actually be refreshing, especially like when you're working on so many projects, like that deadline, like when we ship a project, it's a round of applause. It's, it's a celebration at our studio because like a lot of people worked on those things, a lot, a lot of hard hours, but then it's done, you know, and mm -hmm. is it perfect? Well, no, 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 no product that we make is ever going to be completely perfect. And is there things that, you know, we wish we could take back or wish we could change afterwards? Of course, like we're, we're, it's a creative field. Like there's, it, we're not solving a math equation. We're creating like an experience for people right. and we, we're not going to, we're not going to hit it, you know, a hundred percent every time. If we can get to like, 85%, that's a huge win for us, you know? And so I think that you have to be, when you're working with deadlines, you have to be honest with the people that are giving you the deadlines. And if the deadline, if you're giving yourself the deadline, you have to be honest with yourself um, and let them know truly like, you know, what your work rate is, how you can, how much you can work. Uh, and two, you have to be willing to make decisions quickly and follow your gut a little bit more than you would you don't and, and in some ways that's the best way of breaking through this these creative blocks that we're kind of talking about is it's like if you have to make a decision and you have to just follow that path to its conclusion like it helps you kind of burst through those those hurdles a little bit quicker yeah. um so yeah I, I would encourage if, if you're a freelance or a hobby designer this is a, a practiced skill that you can actually use 
And I would encourage you to try to like try to go for you know a few months, giving yourself deadlines on on projects, even if there's they're just artificial deadlines, and see if you can stick to them and see how it feels to try to stick to deadlines. Because I can tell you right now, like when I started at Force Presan, it was a trial by fire. Like, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, name name games, but there were games where by when I stepped onto their project, we like had, you know, a few months to get files done for. And like you had to crank on those. Like you didn't have time to like like what Jesse was saying, you you don't have the luxury of of pursuing every path so you really have to be very confident in your abilities and confident in your ability to observe play tests and maximize every single play test because you you know you're not going to get that many because of the deadline um, but it's all stuff that you can learn and you can you have to practice it though yeah well and especially the irony is i guess that i have students do this every semester or every other semester depending on how my schedule falls out so they in about nine ten weeks they develop a prototype that goes through three and hopefully even four iterations. So the quality of those prototypes is honestly like really cool for what they know from where they started off as with most of them being non-gamers whatsoever, you know? And so I always try and say that I'm going to design a game with them. So I'm hitting those same deadlines too, um, but it's tough. It's really tough. And I think though that Chris's point is a good one. And maybe that's something that I'll do on Twitter is I'll basically just start giving assignments out for anybody who wants to design along with my students uh let us see who would be fun to see if people would be willing to like work at the same pace that i put them through and also if i put myself through the same pace that i make them through because like i said like with volume you know you can find good work yeah i mean that's why game jams are so interesting you know how much can you get done in a 48 hour 24 hour or two hour jam and it, it, you'll amaze yourself now jesse you started with contests right like yeah. the bgg contests yeah and i don't know if they're still doing it but when i started design someone was running um, monthly design contests on the bgg designer forums so every month you get a theme like celery and you'd have 30 days to produce anything <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and right, and I just I did it for twelve months, um, and that's how I got my feet wet. Yeah, uh, Eric Slauson has a thing that he uses. It's just like a basically a Mad Lib. I'm a Mad Lib kind of guy. I know Eric is as well, and so he uses uses cons as his deadlines. I have to have this game ready to show X at Y, like show Z Man at Origins or show Greater Than Games at you know geek way to the west or whatever and that's a great way of giving yourself a deadline too that's very functional and right. so from that deadline you can build in everything backwards right when you have a deadline then it makes it easier to kind of put your milestones in play like oh then a month before that i have to set my meeting and you know two months before that i should have at least x number of play tests and three months before that i should have you know whatever the rules semi-finalized so i love that i think that's a great way to do it um yeah, Daniel Rocky is is also saying that one of the reasons why he likes to enter a game design contest is just because of the deadlines. And Eric is saying again that the game crafter is what got him into design to design outside of his comfort zone because they have so many contests mm -hmm. um, and you're working with a deadline. And Eric mm -hmm. is great at visual games too because he's an, an artist. And, and so like his games, like his tattoo stories that's come out, is super cute and fun, uh, but he's uh, such a visual person too that he always has really uh, intriguing designs. That and I'm excited to see what comes for him in the future. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and to the, um, to that point, I love that you brought that, that visual element up because, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about designing within parameters. In a lot of ways, deadlines are just extra parameters, right? So if we know at our studio that we have to turn turn a game around in X number of, of weeks, or it's like, well, hey, we can't make Twilight Imperium in this this amount of time. This this is another constraint. Like, what game could I create with if that's, if that time restriction is also one of the parameters I'm working under. So I think it's another good way of kind of like restricting yourself and giving yourself a puzzle to solve. It's like, you know, if you if I'm entering a contest and I have two weeks to make that to make a game, then I have to like, okay, what can, what game can I turn out in two weeks? And it's not going to be you know a complex game. It's going to be a, something simple. You know, right. Yeah, you're right. It's just another constraint to live under. Uh, speaking of time constraints, we're heading up to the last couple of minutes of the show. Uh, Jesse, do you have anything that you're uh, interested in asking our panel of experts? Do you mean the traditional question that I ask the panel of experts? I mean, you, you could do that if you really wanted, Jesse. Is it what gives you I the mean, goddamn right? Because that's the best question ever. <laughs> you can ask. You definitely ask them that. That's hilarious. I, I, I don't know if I can do that. Kathleen, what gives you the goddamn right? Uh, cojones. <laughs> you know, an unreasonable sense of confidence with a surprising lack of uh, product to back it up. <laughs> Very nice. That's a good answer. Thanks. That is a good answer. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, we, we, we are down to our final minutes, though. Uh, so it is tradition around here that um, we ask our guests as our final question, if there was one piece of advice that you could give to any number of game designers in the world who might be watching now or listening to our podcast down the line, what one piece of advice would you want to share with them? Embrace. I, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. No, 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 you, you, by all means. Uh, I would say embrace the Stanford design mindsets. You can just Google the image or look them up. Uh, bias towards action. When it comes to thinking about an idea or just starting to like prototype and work it out and start doing it, start doing. Because you'll be thinking as you're doing, and then you'll just iterate so much more rapidly through the process of actually making the thing. Bias towards action, one of Stanford's uh, design mindsets. That's that's, that's basically what I was going to say. Um, uh, and I think and I think it's tr- and I think it's true. Absolutely, I, I, Kathleen says it in a much more eloquent way than, than I would. At, at our studio, uh, me and and uh, Deirdre Cross started a joke. Because uh, a lot of people will say like "fake it till you make it," you know that kind of thing, and so what we like to say is "make it till you make it." Like, don't just just make something until you make it, and right. that's what you got to do. And that's and that's kind of the mindset that that we work under is, um, you know, just 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 do what you want to be doing. Right. Great, those are awesome. So on that note, uh, Jess, I'm just going to go through the list yeah. here and say hello to everybody because I didn't get everybody's name. Matt Paquette, hello. Zach Connolly, one of our great moderators, hello. Uh, who else do we got here? More Zach, more Zach, more Zach, more Matt, more Matt. Adam Young down in Sarnia, come and visit us in London and Kitchener. Uh, we would love to play your games sometimes. Jesse Fernandez, Steph Straw was on. Um, let's see who else is here. Brad Bachelor, thanks for the questions. Daniel Rocky, you're wonderful. Um, if you guys get a chance, by the way, to play Daniel's game that Daniel and uh, Gerald Chow made, um, which is what's the name of the game, Jesse? Because it used to be something Artemis else. Project? Artemis Project. I I still call it Merchants of Venus, or not Merchants of Venus, but the something of Venus. Um, yeah, Artemis Project. Great game. Um, 
Let's see. Eric Slauson's on. Good. And Julie Ahern, our last week's guest, has come back to say hello. So, yeah, let's let's talk about the last few things on our list, Jesse. We've got to give one more plug to ProtoTO. It's happening this weekend. So ProtoTO happens at 12 p.m. lunch. We open, well, I don't open, I'll be there, but Pam opens the doors at the Holiday Inn downtown in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We will have our table there. Jesse, myself, and Erica will be there all weekend live streaming right to here. So do pay attention to the links. We'll throw them up and you can watch what we're doing at Prototio, which will be interacting with all the designers that are there, giving them some advice, looking over their sell sheets, play testing our games, play testing their games. We're just going to be doing stuff and it'll be wonderful. Um, and then the other things to connect to us, obviously you can reach us on the Meeple Syrup page, the Meeple Syrup Shop Talk page, where you can discuss things like what is something that is underdeveloped or over-designed? Uh, those are great questions that Chris asks on those pages. So come join in the talk because it's wonderful. Uh, remember, if you are a podcast listener, you can find all of our stuff as well as, excuse me, some great role-playing, uh, actual plays and discussions on the Role to Play Network, uh, our wonderful hosts. And then finally, if you are interested in any of our supplemental material, uh, be having early access to our infograms, we need to make a new one, Jess. We're, we're late on our infograms, um, infographics. Yeah, we not late, but I mean, we should do one. Um, yeah. And uh, check out our Patreon because we have a lot of cool stuff. Um, one of our really well-attended panels from Fan Expo, Kathleen was a superstar there, so that was great. And you can hear the podcast of the education and gaming podcast recording when I get it done up there. I'm working on the contracts one right now. Mm -hmm. So we'll get a couple of them up, one maybe every week, every two weeks. But the only way you can get them is if you back us on Patreon. So it's www.patreon.com slash meeple syrup. And you can subscribe for as low as a buck a month. That's uh, like less than a latte. And that would help us create more content for you. And if you can support us, we would appreciate it. So thank you very much. And thanks to our guests, Kathleen Mercury and Chris Rollins, who are wonderful designers. Make sure you check out Funkoverse, which is dropping into stores like in a couple Next days. Week. Next what? week. Yeah. I, yeah. I, some stores leaked it early, but you know what can you do? Uh, right. So if you want to play as Rose or Blanche, uh, Rose or, or Blanche or Batman or Robin or, or there's no Robin yet. Is there? There's okay. Robin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's not Robin's Blanche in the versus Robin. Yeah. Hey, Blanche. Sky's the limit. Or the Harry Potter people. There you go. Grab that. And next year in 2020, we'll be on the lookout for Kathleen's game, which is Dragnarok. Dirty Bird. Right. Yeah. Not dirty birdies, and not. I call them dirty dragons. I'm sorry. No, that's, that's, that was the working title for a long time. You're, I know. That's, that's no, what, when I played it, it was dirty dragons. So yeah, Dragon no, Rock is the uh, the best name, though. Thank yes, you. it really is. Yeah, people would know if they're going to be drag queen dragons, and I'm like, I wish. Either way, there are now win win. There will be now. Oh, and thank you very much, Arissa Roy Dupuis. For we'll see you at Prototio. I hope, Arissa. Um, yeah. Anyway. Next week, I'm not sure who we have on the show next week, Jesse. Who is it? Let's take a look. Oh, no. I just had that up. Well, Jesse. But I, but I put it away. Well, why? Well, I wanted to pay attention to my guests. Well, you <laughs> know, they're just, just our guests. I appreciate it, Jesse. I appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, we're having Pam, we're having Pam next oh, week. Oh, right. Oh. 
It's just Pam. Oh, no, I'm coming. Pam. Yeah, that's right. We're doing a. Uh, we're I doing a. Questions. Good. We're doing a Proto TO uh, retrospective. Yeah, like a wrap up and a reflection on Proto TO, which is our local prototyping convention, which Pam runs. And then, you know, if you're interested in learning how to run your own, Pam is a legit event coordinator. That is what she does as her job. Uh, and so she knows all the ins and outs, and maybe she'll field some questions from you. So do come next week. We will see you then. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we need that sizzling bacon sound. Where's the sizzling bacon sound? I don't know how to do the outro anymore. Oh yeah, do it with your voice, Jesse. That's it. Okay, that's that. No, I would not. I would not like eat that bacon. Syrup trickling from trees. Uh, we're looking for an intro, an extra, an outro. Yeah, we're looking for an outro uh, phase, phrase still. So, hey, maybe it's the one that's on the screen right now. Maybe it's make it till you make it. But then, you know, uh, Funko would probably sue us. TM, TM, TM. Yeah, yeah. Our lawyers are already on route to Canada. Right? <laughs> yeah, they're coming for you then. <laughs> all right, we'll see you all later. Thank you very much. And good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Meeple Syrup Show. If you'd like to support us on all of our projects, please check out our Patreon page. You can be found at www.patreon.com backslash Until next time, make some great games.